Hey, welcome everybody to News of the Money World. My name is Darcy Ungaro, and I'm talking to Rupert Carline, Kiwi KiwiSaver. How are you, Rupert? I'm very well. How are you, Darcy? Not too bad. Not too bad. Fascinated, as usual, to watch current events unfold with a few interesting hacks and shenanigans happening overseas. So I'm quite keen to have this discussion with you today. Yeah, it's a look. It's been an interesting couple of weeks. And uh, I mean, we're constantly reminded about cybersecurity. It's actually the FMA Fraud Awareness Week uh, in New Zealand. And maybe the FMA needs to do a bit of work overseas because we're starting to see some massive offshore financial institutions paying the price. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny when you have these like money weeks, fraud week, international, you know, cucumber week, whatever it is, there always seems to be some stories that are happening to kind of, you know, support this. So yeah. let's let's talk with a couple of really cool events that I've been watching because just because it's fun and I'm not involved in it. So, hey, you can watch it when it doesn't involve you. Uh, the first thing is that there was a um, Mr. Cooper. I don't know if you've heard of Mr. Cooper. I didn't really I don't even know who this guy is but apparently what he is is it's an institution that buys mortgages so if you take out a mortgage in the US then you might sign up with one lender but then find out that you're actually dealing with Mr. Cooper so Mr. Cooper buys those loans and then you make mortgage payments to Mr. Cooper which is an entity that kind of operates on behalf of something else and so that was hacked um, apparently, and that went down and it caused a lot of disruption to people trying to make their mortgage payments. And it probably created a lot of doubt and, you know, insecurity with those people as well, as, especially those that didn't actually realize that Mr. Cooper had bought their mortgages because they have no idea. So it just kind of shows all the, like the pieces that are all lined up within the financial system as it relates to mortgage providers in the U.S. is kind of complex. And so when one piece breaks, it can lead to downstream ramifications. And then the other thing that I was watching was the ICBC hack. I think it was a, yep. a group known as, uh, what was it called? Lockbet. So this is known, it's got a, like links with a Russian gang, I guess, and Lockbet hacked ICBC and... Actually, it was quite it was quite fascinating. So, like billions of dollars of transactions were transacted over a thumb drive that were couriered back and forth. And it turns out later on that ICBC, which is like one of the largest banks in the world, and we're talking just about the the U.S. operations here, it it's quite fascinating because they actually paid the ransom, which obviously is the thing that we're always told never to do, but they just oh, did it. That. So obviously. Yeah, that, that I just read that this morning. So they were so keen just to get that settled, get back to normal, that they just paid the ransom. So, yeah, that's something. And then the third thing that I've been watching is uh, Moody's downgrade of the U.S. outlook. So this isn't actually downgrading yeah. their, their credit per se, but this is their outlook from stable to negative, which if you think about this in the context of a borrower, the interest rate that you pay or your credit worthiness is tied into your ability to make those payments back to the lender. So obviously they see concern around the U.S.'s ability to make payments or that's increasing. And so it just kind of paints an interesting picture of what might be happening just with these data points. Hackers, um, inability to pay debt, doesn't sound like happy times, especially in the U.S. Oh, no, I think in the U.S. it's pretty interesting, right? I mean, I'm fascinated by the ICBC thing because... 
how they let that happen is, is truly amazing. I mean, there, there were some worries that it disrupted the 30-year auction last week of US Treasuries um, and pushed yeah. up the price potentially. No one's quite sure whether it was Washington uncertainty, whether it was the Fed, or just whether it was a hack that caused um, the 30-year yields to spike um, when that auction yeah. happened last week. So it's kind of been pretty interesting. Um, I think the US, it is turning into a pretty unhappier space at the moment, I think, pretty clearly, right? Yeah. Washington, um, it's kind of where they've got to. There, there is a, We are in a world now where there will need to be another debt ceiling bill passed, which is why Moody's have come out uncertain. Um, Congress have, uh, they have put forward a proposal with the new Speaker of the House um, that was announced last week. The issue is they've already got to the point where some of the hardcore conservative Republicans have said, we will not support this. Uh, and so it's going to need, can, it's going to need Democrats to support it, um, which in itself is kind of suicidal potentially for the speaker. So yeah, we, we are in for an interesting couple of weeks in terms of the U S debt ceiling and, and where that goes. Um, yeah. Quite unfortunately, I think they, they will muddle their way through the, probably the people, the most uncertain part of it is, is what happens in Ukraine. Um, Israel, there's broad consensus that that does need to be supported and they will do whatever it takes there and I think the money will get passed. The issue is that in Ukraine, Biden is, he knows that there's an increasingly large group in Congress that do not want to kind of throw further money at that, which is why he's asking for such a large number. He's asking for 60-odd billion dollars, uh, which is about 12 months worth of spending to support Ukraine um, because the assumption is that if he might be able to get this one through, but he's probably not going to be able to get another one through. Uh, so kind of quite scary, right? Um, kind of where it all leads uh, and yeah. where it goes. And it the final like- data point out of the US that I found fascinating listening to an interview this morning with uh, the head equity strategist at JP Morgan. And he kind of talked about two things, which was one was um, the excess savings that the US consumer has had and which has driven so much of this um, this boom over the last 12 months, they do seem to be drying up. And he's got two quite strong data points for that. One is JP Morgan banks 20% of Americans. And so it's amazing, right, how big it's become. But yeah. they are, um, and they've kind of gone and had a look at accounts and seen that actually the savings balances are significantly smaller than they were. Mm. You kind of nice, simple way of looking and checking. I think it's a great way for the banks to use their data. And then the second reason he's saying is because as oil prices have risen, uh, what they've seen is they've seen a massive reduction in discretionary spending. Um, And so they're kind of seeing a link between oil prices and discretionary spending. And over the last two years, they haven't seen any of that link, which to to the JP Morgan economists is a good indication that actually the US consumer is starting to get the end, towards the end of its resilience. So pretty interesting times coming up. Totally. And that ties into something that I was looking into last week around how during times of uncertainty, the tendency for people is to save more. Yep. And obviously that's kind of in a, it's a leading indicator when you see savings increase. It's, that's probably the first thing that you would see. And then when tough times have indeed arrived, that's when you see savings deplete, which is backed up by what you were saying with the data out of JP Morgan. And I guess what's interesting about that is that if if it's oil induced, like if, if the price of oil goes up, for example, or if there's just inflation, then there's just less money being like there's, there's money being taken out of households. And if there's less lending going on at the same time, 
which there seems to be signs that lending and credit growth is slowing down as well. And these are contractionary forces. It slows down economic growth. So it kind of feels like there is this uh, soon to arrive, quick, sharp, maybe recession coming here, like like quite a quite a decent size one is, is what appears to be coming. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, look, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, we've been busy picking the recession for the better part of the last two years and been consistently right, wrong. So <laughs> I, I, I've given up trying to predict. I, I think that yeah. the, the numbers do seem to be turning though. And the numbers yeah. do start to show the, the resilience of that consumer is weakening. And I mean, we've just come out at earnings season in the US, for example. And earnings season in the US, um, it was a good season. Um, kind of, I think 80, 90% of businesses actually beat estimates. Yeah. But the one thing that disappointed investors is that many customer, many companies were unwilling to give, uh, give guidance. So even the big tech companies were unwilling to give guidance moving forward because they're starting to see a huge amount of uncertainty. Um, and so that to me is, a, is another kind of part of that puzzle. Um, so you, where you, you kind of actually, through that earnings, you actually had the market falling despite the fact that it was a significantly better earnings season than everyone thought. And that's purely because of that forward outlook that people are being pretty nervous on at the moment as well. Right. Because like when we look at the S&P 500, it's showing... It's showing like with with those 500 companies that there's positive earnings growth, but I guess yep. that's measuring where we're at today, yet investors are weighing the likelihood that that's going to turn into gains in the future, right? And that's when they factor in this fundamental stuff. Exactly, right? So 4.1% earnings growth this year. So that's, that's pretty good considering where we were. That's actually the first uh, quarter of positive earnings growth for quite a while, yes. uh, year on year. Um, but yeah, the, the concern is what's next because- when we're pricing equities, you got to remember we price what's happening next, not not what's happened in the past. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the divergence between the US and Europe or the ugliness in the tech sector next? Yeah, actually, I think the US divergence in Europe, that's quite a good one. Eh? So go into right. that one. Um, cool. and, right. and then also moving into kind of the, the non-tech companies in the US and what's happening with the, um, yeah. with um, Russell 2000 versus okay. NASDAQ. Good. Okay, so like thinking about the US, the US has its own issues, own challenges, but they're starting to divert a little bit with what's happening in Europe. So do you want to give me the the overview of what's happening in the US market versus the European market? Yeah, so look, the, the US market, the European market's performing a lot worse uh, than what's happening in Europe. We've got the earnings cycle in Europe uh, has been pretty strongly negative. To be honest, that's driven by, by a couple of things, right? Um, You've got the economic cycle, which is first and foremost. The the US still in growth mode, still going pretty strong. I think no one's quite sure on what's happening in Europe and where that goes next. It's still plagued by very high energy costs. Um, it's got a lot of money to spend on the energy transition. It's just got, well, and all of the structural issues that we've been talking about for the better part of the last 20 years don't seem to be going away, right? So you've got inefficient labour markets, you've got ageing population, and then you've also got very high debt levels for a number of these countries. And so I think people are looking through it and going, well, actually, the next couple of years could be pretty ugly economically. But even when we come out the other side, we're not really sure what's going to happen. The, the second part of the story around what's happening in Europe is that um, if you think about a lot of the makeup of their economy is its resources, right? It's resources, it's financials. We've talked about this before. It is the old world, the old economy. Um, whereas when you come and you think about what's driving the US market and the US earnings season forward, it's tech. 
Um, yeah. And it's 100% down to the new economy. Great stat. Uh, Microsoft already, despite the fact they've only started kind of AI in the last 12 months, 3% of their revenues already are coming from AI. Wow. And that's not a small number considering the size of Microsoft, right? And the, the problem with Europe, Europe just doesn't have any of those kind of companies. Um, I think that they've only got a couple of companies that are in the hundreds of billions of dollars uh, on the many over $500 billion. They don't have a trillion dollar company yet. And there is just nothing in there that, that seems to be it. They haven't been able to innovate. They haven't been able to kind of move forward. And unfortunately, at the moment, the market is rewarding innovation um, versus rewarding um, old school industrial manufacturing. That's interesting, isn't it? So this new economy, the technology economy, is basically what's underpinning the yep. U.S. growth. Like that's kind of the story. It's really just technology. And then we have basically Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, NVIDIA, Tesla, a few others. But there's really just a small handful of those companies specifically, right? Oh, there are um, a small handful of those companies that um, that are driving the. But you got to remember, right? That is what's driving the stock market. There's a big difference between the stock market and the economy, and so the the Magnificent Seven continue to drive the U.S. stock market. Um, you, you look at there's a great chart that I saw earlier in the week from the Economist that was talking about the performance of the Magnificent Seven versus the rest. Yes, and the Russell 2000, which is the broader kind of universe, is basically flat over the last two or three years, whereas the Nasdaq's still up 20%. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of, that's that world that Europe just hasn't been able to, to establish, the, the, the big tech. And it feels as though they've, they've all gone on an AI-driven boom. But what's really fascinating about that is, in my mind at least, AI will, will reward the winners and today's winners um, versus the smaller people in the industries, right? AI well, requires very large that? data sets yeah. and it also requires huge amount of processing power and processing power costs a huge amount of money. And so that kind of brick to me means actually the Amazons, the Googles, the um, Facebooks and the Microsoft, they've won in the past and they're likely to use their current strengths to win in the future as well. Okay. Thinking then just around how investors can form their strategy then, I know that with a lot of people that are into investing into the index and playing a passive strategy, which seems to have been quite a good strategy over the last few decades, there's there's a couple of different nuances there. And thinking about how the Magnificent Seven, the, the small handful of companies specifically uh, in tech, are really driving everything here. Talk to me about the market cap versus the weighted approach yep. with indexing. So there are two general types of index. So you've got the market cap weighted index. So basically what that does is, and so they're using the S&P 500 or the NZX 50, that looks at the entire, what we call the free float of the NZ, of those kind of companies. So the definition of free float is anything that is not held up, owned by a strategic um, owner, right? So for most of the US companies, it's, it is 100%. And so the S&P 500, the weighting of Microsoft, for example, in that, in that is dependent on its market cap. Or Google or Apple, it's dependent on its market cap. And that's why, even though you've got um, 500 stocks making up the S&P 500, the top six or seven at the moment make up almost 30% because they, are become, they have become by far and away the largest companies around. 
Uh, you think about Apple, right? There's, Apple's potentially going to become a $3 trillion company. I mean, Microsoft, if it achieves its AI goals, likely to also become a $3 trillion company. It's only five years ago that we were thinking a $500 billion company was kind of massive and no one thought we'd get to a trillion dollar company. Yeah. Um, the, the alternative that you have is what we call an equal weighted market cap, uh, a equal weighted index. And so what this does is it says, well, there's 500 companies in the S&P 500. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to give every single one of them the same amount and then go from there. So every single company is going to have 0.2% of the index um, and then go from there. How this differs is what that means is if you believe that big tech is currently um, overvalued, then what you'll do is what that means is that the big tech and the Magnificent Seven, that's only going to make up 1.4% of that index. So therefore, a very small portion. And so you're going to get much more exposure to the smaller caps and everything else in that in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, if you kind of think actually the Magnificent Seven and the, and the big tech and what's happening there, we really like that actually the traditional S&P 500 indexes that we are, look, are used to looking at. So the VOO, uh, the Vanguard equivalent, the iShares equivalent, that's kind of um, probably where you want to play. Or you could even go further concentrated and simply invest in a NASDAQ 100 ETF, um, right. which again would give you an even more concentrated exposure to tech right. as well. So okay. it's kind of really interesting how and which index, probably in the current environment, what index you choose depends a little bit on your beliefs around big tech and how sustainable their current valuations are, how sustainable their current market positions are, but it is really interesting. And you could, I guess, even by using like a passive vehicle you, you're still overlaying an active strategic decision by yeah. potentially adopting a market cap approach during certain seasons and then going more towards the just the equal weighted index during other seasons so for example if you believe that tech is potentially overvalued like you say you might want to convert you're still investing in the same things but just at different ratios right Oh, and look, you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head, right? For me, the traditional definitions of active and passive, they don't really mix, right? Because I don't think there is a true definition of passive. Yeah. So for example, here at Kura, we are a passive investor. But we, so that means that we don't chop and change our strategy all over the, all over the place. But at the same time, we've chosen indices and we invest in indices because they have ESG criteria uh, we've chosen markets because of how they perform. We've chosen different instruments because of how we expect them to perform. So yeah. we might be, what really I think, I, I would like to see a definitional change between passive and active and mm. that passive is consistent and kind of long-term versus active where you will be constantly reviewing those decisions. And to be fair, we are constantly reviewing those decisions, but we're reviewing them without an expectation to change. Um, and then we're making slightly broader, more macro decisions versus at an individual stock level decisions. But I think that's probably one of the big fallacies of passive mm. is that you just, you, you're given an index, you go for it and you never look at anything again. There yeah. are still a million de- de- individual individual decisions that need to be made on the way through. Yeah, and especially with Kura as, as well, like I know on the KiwiSaver side, by providing the option where you can individually fine tune the blend of the different funds within your KiwiSaver portfolio, well, You've just allowed for another active intervention, haven't you? So 
it is a fractal thing, isn't it? Like you, you zoom in and then you can zoom out and you might yep. use passive tools, but you're still employing an active strategy, which, yeah, you're right. Maybe, maybe it needs a rebranding, but it, it isn't a simple concept to get your head around when you're just starting out. Oh, no. Um, and it's, well, I think what's fascinating is um, the definition of passive and the name passive was actually was nominated and given by the active guys in the early 1990s. Um, right. as a way to kind of denigrate that form of investing. Right, okay, gotcha. <laughs> Which I thought was fascinating, right? Yeah, now it's come back full circle. Okay, so let's talk maybe now about uh, EV stocks just, just while we can here because I think this is another example. So we have AI, which is really supercharging the tech space. And then when we look at one of the Magnificent Seven, that's Tesla. And Tesla have always been a surprise in my mind. And I think they've always caught people off guard with what, what they do. And I think on, in both directions, they might surprise in the future. You never really know, right? That's, that's the nature of all. Uh, yeah, well said. Yeah. So, but what, what, what he's done now, what, what Mr. Musk has, has done now is he's decided to kind of get into the space of entering the race towards zero and starting a pricing war which I think is a really interesting strategy when I guess in a sense, automakers are kind of like a, this oligopoly and you've seen, I've seen articles recently where you've seen comments from other manufacturers, almost like sending a message to Elon saying, you know, that that's not a good strategy, almost in a way of, you know, keep your prices high, allow us to do our thing. This is how it works. So I wonder just how that ends because the price of a Model 3, which is a lot of vehicle, in my view, as, as an owner of one, like you get amazing value. If the val- if the price goes down, then that's really going to shake up the industry. And I just don't know what the long-term ramification of that is. But we now have a situation where demand is starting to fall away, where it's not a supply side issue. It's more of a demand yeah. thing. So do you want to talk to me about what, what's happening in that space? I think what's really interesting in the in the EV space is we're now moving to a world where um, it is becoming more traditional. I think for a very long time, Tesla have had the market all to themselves, yeah. Um, and it's they were kind of seen as the big the, the leaders. And look, I, I from what everyone tells me, uh, the Tesla vehicle is an exceptional vehicle and an amazing vehicle for the money that you get it for. But the problem is, there's now a huge amount of competition. I mean, here in New Zealand, you just look around the streets, right? Where whether it be at BYD, whether it be the Hyundai Ionic, um, there's just so many different options now. And so, I think probably for the first five years or ten years of their life, or the last five years, Tesla's been able to go, well, look, hey, we've got a good EV. We basically, if you want an EV, it's us. Yeah. Um, whereas now they're having to fight, and they're having to fight a lot harder. And what that means, unfortunately, they're doing what car makers have always done, is when they get kind of having to fight for volumes, they drop their prices. Um, and one of the big hypotheses around Tesla had always been they were differentiated enough and that they were always going to be able to earn higher margins and they were going to be able to retain higher margins. And I think that's kind of one of the current fears is actually how true is that piece of thinking? Um, because if we if they do need to keep on dropping price to compete, then we do end up in a, in a very different organization than kind of what we thought we did. And to be fair, we end up with an organization that looks very similar to a traditional car manufacturer, right? Where mm. it's all about pricing, all about the ability to do to get margin, and all about the ability to create scale. Because scale is what matters at industrial, at big industry. 
um, when you kind of you need a factory full, needs to be running at 100% capacity or close to. Um, otherwise, it can cost you a huge amount of money. And I think it's not just Tesla here. So Tesla's had to drop prices to keep keep volumes going. But we've seen a lot of changes in um, in the demand profile for electric vehicles as well. So in the US, we've had GE come out in the last couple of weeks saying, hold on, we're actually not going to hit our EV targets anymore. Um, and not yeah. because of production issues. We're not going to hit those EV, EV targets because consumers just aren't buying them. Mm. Uh, I think there's a, there's a general recognition that as we've kind of gone through the, the early adopters, um, EVs are definitely aimed at the higher price points and at the higher end of kind of where consumers are. I mean, think about here in New Zealand, right? You're looking at a minimum of 60. Um, and once those subsidies come off in the next couple of weeks, I assume, that's you're going to see a massive shift in where that demand sits. And so I, I think we're kind of going, hold on a sec, does the adoption curve slow down until we can get a kind of $30,000, $40,000 car in New Zealand terms, probably a $40,000 car across the line. Um, and that kind of allows us to kind of finally move in and deal with the, the Mazda's kind of CX-3 or all of those kind of cars that probably need to move electric, but they're not at a price point that lets them do that. So it is going to be a really interesting time. I think the other point that I found fascinating when I was doing a little bit of work and looking at the EV sector over the last couple of weeks is what is the only thing I know for certain is that we do not know who the winner is going to be. Mm. Um, the technological shift and changes that are currently happening are still massive, right? So you've got Toyota coming out with the fact that they think they've nailed solid state batteries. If that is true, then all of a sudden we've got EVs that have got 10 minute charging times and 1200 kilometer ranges. Um, no one will sell another EV until they catch up and figure out how they're going to do that production. If it is true, which is a yeah. massive if. We still haven't got to the bottom of hydrogen. Um, and I think what's what, I, what we're always really, really important to remember is that we are in the very, very early stages of this journey. Um, I, I'd say we're kind of five years in. Um, but over the next 10 years, it's going to be fascinating to see which technology wins and therefore who are the players that win, right? I've, hopefully, uh, well, probably you'll remember this, but not many of our listeners, but we just need to remember the Betamax Fiat chess wars. That's right. Um, and a kind of if we end up with different battery technology, we're going to end up back in those days as well. Potentially, potentially, except it's, it's, a, it's a difference in terms of formatting versus what's actually con, uh, containing the power, right? And I think going back to the, like the Tesla, whether they will make it, whether they won't, like you look back at Detroit, Michigan, and it's just like the history is there. The evidence is there that when, um, when tough times happen, things collapse, government steps in because they're too big to fail. They're a massive employee. The difference with Tesla is that there's not necessarily a massive yeah. em level of employee. There's just machines. So it's, it's a very different thing. Like this electric car thing has been with us now for, you know, as long as the petrol engine, like maybe even longer, like electric vehicles have been around for well over a hundred years, but the model that they're now competing in is a, an internal combustion engine model, which has had a century to develop all around yeah. it. And so it's now got this revival within this system, which is kind of falling apart. So I think it's like a, 
I think it's going to be interesting. And like you say, it's not necessarily a given and the story is far from being written. So it'll take some time for that to play out. Hey, while, while we're on the topic of power and cars and moving things around, let's talk about oil because, hey, that's what, you know, that's where a lot of the energy comes from, especially with, with uh, petrol vehicles. So the oil prices that's continuing to fall despite what's happening in the Middle East oil often will overreact to geopolitics and then it will kind of subdue. So it's, it's almost like a bit of a leading indicator, I think, for how bad things might get in the Middle East. And it's a little bit like the boy who cried wolf as well. Like things could actually still escalate, especially with all the players that are in that region. I've been looking a lot into that recently and it won't take much Really, it could even just be an accident. And then the U.S. is now in a major conflict directly with Iran. So if that happens, absolutely, we'll see oil go to the next level. But what's your general view on this? And this is important because this obviously is, is really interlinked to inflation and therefore interest rates. I think you've got to remember, right, oil, oil revolves around two things, supply and demand. And there are there are some pretty big risks in the supply side at the moment. Um it was interesting. I was listening to something last night or last a couple of days ago, which was talking about how the current price of oil and traders are already pricing in closure of the Suez Canal and closure of the Straits of Hermes. Wow. Um, which wow. is actually really interesting, right? Because those are some pretty big costs that kind of, I think that adds an extra two or three weeks to shipping times um, by the time you put those two things in. And so what that means is that actually the supply side is kind of in the supply shock is is kind of a bit of that's been priced in probably not all of it but a decent chunk of it but we've still over the last three weeks seen oil drop from 95 dollars a barrel um down to kind of mid 70s Mm. and to me that means it's a demand story and so coming back to where we started around we've got a weaker we've got a weaker u.s consumer we've got a a china chinese market that's kind of struggling uh, we've, we've got Russia that's kind of pumping volumes through. There's no question on it to, to China in particular. But I do think it's really interesting. So I, I think actually to me, the oil price is a really good indicator of what's happening with demand um, and economic demand because let's be honest, as much as we hate to admit it, the world still revolves around oil and needs oil to function. Yeah. And so that's where I was kind of just wanted to kind of think about and go supply side issues, but the, the price of oil is still tanking. That to me is a is a really interesting question. I was right. thinking about this over the weekend yet though, when yeah. I was driving past the petrol station and saw that uh, here in New Zealand, despite the fact that we've had crude drop so sharply, we still haven't got any petrol price relief yet, uh, which to me suggests that we have a few structural issues in our market that need to be addressed by the, hopefully the new incoming government as well. Yeah, yeah. Another job for them to sort out, right? Another job, just another yeah. oligopoly that they need to sort out. But yeah. uh, clearly, I mean, with Z, Z Energy is no longer listed, but uh, I would suggest that the domestic refiners, the domestic fuel companies here in New Zealand are earning more margin than they've ever earned at the moment. Interesting. Okay. And so that, but I guess what you were alluding to before, though, is that, it, again, it's another indicator that recession is starting to like global recession is really starting to materialize right i uh, definitely i, I think um oil is is often one of the best precursors that you get for economic activity yeah. and increasingly we are starting to see that die and we are starting to see that come off 
it'll yeah. be interesting to see what happens over the next couple yeah. of weeks as we kind of figure out what happens in um, in Gaza. Um, there's clearly a lot of political outrage and increasingly it's looking as though that the, the risk levels there are being elevated. We're not seeing that at the moment in, in oil prices. Yeah, there's, I, and I think that will, or could, sorry, very quickly come off in terms of that risk and it'll be interesting to see what happens to the price of oil when that happens. Um, yeah, I think so. And I think like the reason why I, like, I'm particularly interested in this is because there, there's these equal and opposite forces yep. going on right now with say recession and also the u.s borrowing a lot more money than yep. than they had previously partly to fund this this war machine and so i think we've, we've got an interesting dynamic at play that will affect interest rates potentially in the short term we might see short-term interest rates fall but long-term interest rates we might see them spike so back to a positive yield curve uh, that's something i guess that we could pick up that conversation more as we go though right Oh, massively. But I mean, I think what, what you've got to, you, I think it's important that we put the, the war effort in context though, right? They're asking for about $80 billion across those two wars. Um, what's fascinating, right? The size of the US economy, it's $23 trillion. Uh, so a massive economy, right? At the moment, the US, the US government spends about 4% of GDP on defense spending. So let's just call that a trillion dollars. Um, so actually, eighty million dollars—it's nothing in the scheme of it. I mean, that, that's the—that's what I find so amazing about America and the US Bay. It's yeah. just a scale, right? And it's just so, so, so humongous. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's there's lots to dig into around that one. How's that for yeah. leaving it on an open-ended discussion right there? Eh? But like, let's let's keep that <laughs> let's keep that one going. All right. Well, that was, that was a lot of ground that we covered today, Rupert. Thanks for that. Uh, we've come to an end. Anything else that we want to finish up on, or? Are we all good? Oh, look, I think, um, no, I think we've covered a lot of stuff. There's going to be some some really interesting things in there. Um, just remember, we've talked about a few regional regional things, a few companies. Please uh, don't take what we talk about as financial advice and yep. make sure you, if you are going to kind of think about doing any trading, uh, take your own advice and do your own independent research before you do so, please. Yeah, well said. Thank you very much. Awesome. With that, let's finish up. Thanks very much, Rupert. Thanks, Darcy. Great to speak to you. See you next time.